0: All right, good morning, Four Oaks. So glad that you're here. Pastor Paul, if we don't know each other, I am invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter five. We're continuing in that series that I think has been cleverly titled From Rags to Righteous. Now, this will be our last sermon in Romans till after the new year. So next Sunday begins Advent season, and we're gonna be camping out in the book of Isaiah, where for over four or five weeks, we're gonna be talking about the incarnation and the promises, the prophecies, the waiting, the hope, and that's going to culminate in our Christmas Eve celebration, which we're going to do outside this year under the lights and the oaks. And that's going to be a special time. And so glad we're going to be able to do that. I hope you join us there for Christmas Eve. But this morning, Romans 5. Last week, we looked at what I believe is one of the most magnificent texts of Scripture. And if you weren't here, let me just give you the cliff Notes version very quickly. Paul is, Paul is simply telling us this. By virtue of us being made right with God, justified by God, Paul says, God has not simply canceled our sin, although he's absolutely done that. Paul tells us that we now have permanent, unrestricted, unhindered communion and access to the God of the universe. In other words, when it comes to knowing God through Christ, we are not acquaintances of God. We are not merely friends of God. We're not even like extended family to God where we get together once a year for that meal on the fourth Thursday of November and hope against hope, nothing bad happens, right? During that meal. Nope, that's not it at all. When it comes to being a part of the family of God, through Christ, God has welcomed us. He's adopted us. He has invited us in to have a permanent seat at the table Of feasting, and that's verses one through five in a nutshell. Now, in our text this morning, Paul is going to give us an amazing privilege, church. Paul is going to kind of peel back the curtains just a little bit, and he wants us to get a glimpse into the heart of God Himself. He wants to sort of show us, unfold for us, what it is in the heart of God that has compelled God to do what He has done for us. What's at the core of God's rescue of you and me. And that's where we're headed in Romans chapter five. So if you can, if you're willing, able, invite you to stand. We're just gonna have six short verses this morning. We're gonna start back in verse five to kind of give us a running start in Romans five, and the text will be on the screen for you. Here's the Apostle Paul. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, this is another glorious text, and we pray that we would just sort of move ourselves out of the way so that your Holy Spirit can live and breathe and speak through your word. Lord, this is a word that we desperately need. Lord, we are frail. Lord, we are weak. Father, we doubt, we worry, we're full of anxiety. We fail often to trust you. And Lord, we're asking that you would meet us in that place this morning through these precious promises in your word. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please take your seats. In verse five, Paul tells us or gives us the topic of our text this morning, right? Um, he he, He points us to this idea that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. And so we're going to unpack what it is that moves in the heart of God to do just that. So three points this morning, all all about love. And here they are. Number one, we're going to talk about the origin of God's love. Two, the object of God's love. And three, the outcome of God's love. And so just for all you Baptists out there, three points all nicely alliterated. So here we go. The origin of God's love. Look at verse 5. Paul says it again, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Now I would, I would suggest just a theology test 101. If I was to ask each of you to take out a sheet of paper and to write on that paper, God is blank and have you fill in the blank. God is blank. And if you were also to sample just a random sampling of people across Tallahassee, the people at Cascades Park, or Falls Chase Theater, or FSU campus, or down at the Capitol building, and you ask them to do that and write down, God is blank, fill in the blank, I think the answer, by and large, would largely be the same. See, the most common answer, I think, whether inside, outside the church, um, Christian, non-Christian, spiritual, non-spiritual, I believe most people would say that God is love. I, 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 think it's, I think it's almost a universal attribute that everyone wants to ascribe to God. And, and please hear this, there is no but coming, and for good reason, right? Because this is the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. I found 745 references to love in the Bible. I counted each and every one as my Logos software counted them for me, right? 287 references to love in the New Testament alone. And I want to read just a sample, just an audit of some of these verses. And the reason I want to do this is because the love of God can just be so familiar, so ubiquitous, so, shall I say, normal and ordinary. We, we, we traffic in that kind of language. We forget what we are actually proclaiming when we say that, in fact, God is love. So just hear these texts read over you. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 16, For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Ephesians 1, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Ephesians 5, 2, And walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice. To God Second Thessalonians, now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace and just a couple more. First John 2:7, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And finally, first John 4:19, we love because he first loved us. Do you get the idea? Now, when we say that God is love, let's think for just a moment about the the sheer implications of what we are saying when we say that. We know that God is eternal, which means that God has always been love. There has never been a moment in the history of the universe that has been loveless. God is love. And we see the manifestation of God's love most clearly in his relationship with himself, with the Trinitarian reality that stands behind it, that God is one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all three of these persons are bound up in this eternal love relationship. Now, what Paul points us to here in verse five is that this love is so strong. This love is so powerful that it literally cannot be contained within the Godhead itself. In fact, it seeks expression somewhere. See, that's what Paul is referring to here in verse 5, where he says God's love has been poured out into our hearts. The word that Paul uses, poured, it literally means to gush out, to spill over, to be deluged. In other words, the love of God is so strong that it pushes itself forward. It is constantly seeking somehow, somewhere, to someone to be shared, to be dispersed, to be displaced. In other words, the eternal love of God is so strong, it will seek an outlet. About 20 years ago, when Susan and I lived in the little neighborhood right behind the church property here, uh, we were sort of catty corner to the stormwater pond that was right on the other side of the fence there. About 20 years ago, there was a tropical storm that came through Tallahassee, and it, I kid you not, it rained, about nine, it rained nine inches in about 20 seconds, right? The water was coming so hard, so fast, that the stormwater pond here on the church's property began to flood over into our yard. Now, the church did not own the property at that time. But otherwise, we would have had a Coke Zero suing Coke kind of situation there, right? But that water could not be contained. And as it pressed against our house, I picked up the phone and I called my friend, John Stewart. When I say I called John Stewart, I mean I screamed loudly that he could hear me at his house, help me. And here we are in the middle of the night, lightning and thunder are striking all around us. We are shoveling dirt away from my house, looking, finding somewhere where that water could have another outlet besides our bedroom, which is where it was making its nice home for us that night, right? It didn't work, right? We were, might as well have been the little Dutch boys with our finger in the dike. That water was so overwhelming, so powerful, it was not going to be contained. This is the same word that Paul uses for the love of God. It is, originates in God, and by definition, by its very nature, that love wants to be shared. And that love seeks out an object And that brings us to our second point, the object of God's love. Let's look at verse six. Paul says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse eight, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me ask you a question. How do you know if someone loves you? How how do you measure love? And what Paul is pointing us to here is you measure love by the actions it produces. You measure love by the initiative and effort and creativity that it inspires. You measure love by the degree of difficulty by which one goes to express that love. And so we have four kids and our two oldest girls are college age now, one is married. But when they were in high school, there was a season, and I don't know if it's exactly this way now, but I, I think it probably is, when guys were asking girls to the prom or home, so, or homecoming or some other gosh forsaken dance at the high school there, right? And it was a bit of competition among the guys who could find the most creative way to ask the girl to the dance. Was it going to be a radio spot? Was it going to be an airplane banner? Was somebody going to parachute uh, in from the outside? Was it going to be an invitation buried in a piece of food? Or in one of our daughters' case, was it going to be a little football inscripted with an invitation tossed to her across the school cafeteria, right? See, a simple request for a date was not good enough. That did not show you really love. That did not show you really care. If that guy was serious, he was going to lay it all on the line. And so young men, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, right? Now, how do we measure God's love for us? Paul answers this by getting us to think about our human relationships. So stay with me here for a second. Who are the people whom you are willing to die for? And we all have that list, okay? And hopefully it's not a list written down somewhere, but it's, it's kind of mentally in your mind. Who are the people that you're willing to die for? In fact, if there was a catastrophic event right here, right now, God, heaven forbid, who would you run to to help first? Parents, you don't even have to think twice about that one, right? You are finding your kids. Um, you are finding your spouse, natural, and instinctual. But after that, who would you look to help first? And I'm sure most of you would say your pastors, of course, right? Or your community group members, or your friends. Paul answers that question for us. Listen to what he says in verse 7. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. What Paul is pointing out here is the human instinct, the human reality, that the more we love, the more we like, the more we identify with someone, the more likely we are to sacrifice, to give up, to serve, and dare I even say, die for that person. But what about someone you dislike? How easy would it be then to die for that person? Let's keep it real for a second here. Imagine there's that catastrophic event here but locked up in a room somewhere on site is a convicted killer, someone who is on death row, but not just any convicted killer, a convicted killer that has actually harmed someone in your family. Would you save that person? And if you say that you would, you're lying, right? Most of us wouldn't even have to think twice about that. But see, the analogy is still not complete though. In order to save this convicted killer who has killed one of your family members, what if you knew you were going to have to give up the opportunity to save your own child? Preposterous, we would say, right? Outrageous, offensive, repugnant, outlandish. Who would even suggest this crazy idea? Now you're beginning to get at the heart of what Paul's saying. Of the extent, the source, the heart, and the impulse of God's love. I want you to listen to all the words that Paul uses to describe us and our posture towards God. And there's kind of a a progression here that goes from bad to worse. First of all, he says that we are weak. The word is literally impotent, in other words, unable to do anything at all to please God or to save ourselves. Secondly, he says that we are ungodly. The literal translation is godless. There is no innate desire for any of us to please God just for the sake of pleasing him. Paul goes on to call us sinners. Now, you may have heard sin defined as, well, you know, Pastor Paul, that's when people make mistakes. You know, sin is a Greek term from the archery where you miss the target and you come up short. That's not the kind of sin Paul's talking about. Sin goes way beyond just making mistakes. Sin is defying and straying from the person of God. This is why Paul culminates this whole discussion by making the declaration that we, in fact, church, were enemies of God. Hostile, defiant, because we were the picture of ungodliness. We were the picture of unworthiness. Yet... And, so, and I say all that to say, understand that God's love was in no way prompted because he detected in us some, you know, a contrite spirit. Or, you know, we were just misunderstood if we were put into this situation and that situation, he knows that we would choose him. Christ's death for us was not inspired because he detected a contrite spirit. Or some tiny impulse that would move towards him, that would do better next time, that would turn over a new leaf. No, 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 no. We were the object of God's love, Paul says, while we still hated God. Do you get the picture now? So when Paul speaks of the love of God, this love is no mere sentimental novelty. This is a love with teeth, church. This is a love that spares us from the worst possible outcome. Look at verse 9. Paul says this saves us from the wrath to come. And here Paul is referencing the eternal conscious punishment in the lake of fire that will one day be the situation when Jesus returns to claim those who belong to him And for those who don't know him, who've rejected him, who've rebelled against him, to spend eternity away from him in hell. God's love is no mere abstract theological principle or truth. Guys, God's love is deeply personal. It is deeply relational. And because we understand this, and we understand that this indeed is a precious thing, We want to know, well, then, Pastor Paul, how does this amazing love relate to me? Third point, the outcome of God's love. You've heard me say this before, but if I were to categorize the struggles that Christians contend with when it comes to doubt and unbelief, they're not the apologetic kind. In other words, Pastor Paul, I'm dealing with the philosophical um, you know implications of Christianity, and I'm, I'm wondering why the Bible is true, and I'm I'm, I'm wondering can I really trust God's word, and, and there are people with those sorts of doubts, and I don't want to disparage them, but by and large, church, they're not the preponderance of doubts that most people experience that I've engaged in in pastoral ministry. People's fundamental question, I find, is not is Christianity true. People's fundamental struggle is, Pastor Paul, I believe it's true. I do. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died on a cross to save sinners. I believe there are other people who know him. I just don't know if I do. See, in other words, people have no problem intellectually grasping the gospel and expressing confidence that it can save others. They're just not so sure about themselves. They look at their own doubts and anxiety and worries and fear, and they suffer from lack of assurance. Now, I think Paul is speaking specifically to that group of people right here, which I dare say is most of us, if not all of us, at some point in our Christian walk in life, I think this is exactly the sort of scenario he envisions. And I think that he's essentially, here is essentially what he's saying in this text. We Christians have no problem believing that Jesus died for us, no problem believing that the cross is the supreme demonstration of his love. We have no problem believing and trusting the gospel. We have no problem believing that Jesus saves in the abstract. Yet often, for some reason, we doubt that this same God can keep us and preserve us to the end surely there's going to be something that we do to screw it up along the way. As John MacArthur would say, if you could lose your salvation, you would. I mean, it's very simple, right? So to show the logical absurdity of this and how it works, Paul uses a rhetorical argumentation device. And here I get to show off my ability to quote a commentary, right? Ad minori ad meus. It means from minor to the major, or in this case, from the greater to, To the lesser. Now let's look back at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, here it is, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10: For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, here it is again, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And the key phrase there, of course, is much more. Susan and I had a friend in college whose family owned literally half of West Tennessee, right? And interestingly, the daughter was fairly clueless about how much money her family had. She always acted like she didn't have much money, even as she drove around her new Beamer around the UT campus, right? Well, she was getting married, and she was fretting about how much her wedding was costing her parents, and did they have enough money to pay for it? And her dad said, baby, that's what they say in West Tennessee, baby, look outside. You see all those cattle out there roaming around in our thousands of acres, right? I could sell one of those and pay for your wedding. What was his point? If I own half of West Tennessee, how much more can I pay for your little wedding? And I said, amen, come please pay for my three daughters too. That would be wonderful, right? That's what Paul means here. Follow the logic. If God has made peace with us through death, that, now that's what's happened, right? Jesus has laid down his life. He has purchased peace for us. He has bought and secured salvation through a death. How much more can the living, resurrected Christ keep you? How much more can the living, resurrected Christ preserve you? How much more can the living, resurrected Christ Christ, carry you across the finish line. It's as Jesus is saying, do you think I went to the cross and purchased your salvation, but now I can't finish the job? See, God has not just delivered us, church, in the past by his grace or forgiven us in the present by his grace, but this is so important. This is what Paul's pointing to here. He has promised to keep us through his future grace. See, now I want you to listen to the texts that promise you just that, and that promise me just that. And these are texts that talk about how God will preserve and keep his people to the very end. 1 Corinthians 1, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless. Guiltless church in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Second, first Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. Listen, he will surely do it. Second Thessalonians. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible, Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that or confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That is a promise. And maybe, maybe one of my favorite verses in the Bible, absolutely. Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love that passage, save to the uttermost. It means God is able to save you completely, fully at all times. Not based upon the fact that he merely died for you in the past, but that he is now, church, at the right hand of the Father praying for you, interceding for you, making appeals for you that not only did he die for you, but he will certainly complete the work that he has begun, which brings us to verse 11. And I think it's the summation of everything that Paul has been saying. Paul says this in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And here is what I anticipate Paul would want us to do at this point. He's anticipating that we are now opening the word and we are hearing it taught. And that we're going to go home today and we're going to pour over it. And we're going to meditate on it. We are going to be moved by its truth. And then, Paul says, we are going to be moved towards something. Moved to do something. And what is that thing? That Paul says we'll be moved to do. Simply put, church, it is to rejoice. That Paul anticipates that this knowledge, this truth that he has unpacked for us will have this formative effect in our hearts, that we will be encouraged, that we will be spurred on, that we will be motivated, that, that there will be a deep and abiding joy that takes place. In our hearts. In other words, Paul is pushing us here, is he not? Towards, dare I say it, an emotional engagement with him, towards a subjective experience. That's what he means when he says the Holy Spirit is poured out in your hearts. That means that God's Spirit testifies to your spirit, and even though you may be sorrowful, you will always be rejoicing. You may say, well, Pastor Paul, that's not me. I'm just not very emotional. Right? I come from a Stoic family, and I'm not comfortable with emotions or feelings. I'm more comfortable with the truth and the facts and the gospel and the stated text of the scripture. And understand, guys, Christianity is every bit of that. Emotions stripped of, of truth and the gospel and God's word are just that. They're mere emotions. But understand this, church. Christianity is much more than that. And see, Paul is pushing us towards this place where he says, you just can't read these words and hear them and consider them and not be impacted, not have your heart move, not have your emotions move. That's not all it is, but that's a part of being human. That's part of being made in the image of God. In other words, Paul wants us to walk away from this text with our hearts encouraged to know that even if the world is falling down all around us. All around our soul gives way, as the hymn says. That Jesus is our hope and stay. Many of you know Liz Cleary. Liz has been a longtime member of this church. She's taught the word of God to women in our church for years. She's poured her life into younger women, older women, women of all ages, And at 62 years old, she's been battling liver cancer for the last several years. And her family has been with her this week, waiting for the Lord to take her home. And it was just a week or so ago that she communicated to those around her, you know what? I'm ready. I'm ready to be with the Lord. I pray that it's quick. I pray that it's soon. But I am entrusting my soul to the God who made me and died for me. And we ask, how can someone on the brink of death have that kind of confidence, have that kind of courage? I have now been justified by his blood, Paul says, much more shall I be saved by him. Got a text during the first service when I was sharing that story that Liz indeed passed away this morning and is now with the Lord. And she is rejoicing. And when we rejoice in this life, oh church, it's just a foretaste of the eternal joy that we will have with the God who loved us and gave himself up for us even while we were his enemies. He died for us. Church, do you have that kind of certainty? Do you have that kind of confidence? <clears throat> That's Paul's deepest desire for you, is that you would know that this is true for those who have placed their faith in him. And if you can, if we can pray for you, if we can talk to you after this service, if we want to, if you would just say, you know, Pastor Paul, I've never experienced that. I, I've never known that for certain. I feel racked with doubts and conflicted heart all the time we would love, love, love the elders after the service to pray for you, to lay hands on you, to talk to you, to serve you. But church, Paul points us to the greatest reality that any human being could ever know. While we were enemies, while we were opposed and defiant to God, God said, that's okay. I'm going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I'm going to lay my life down for you so that now you can rejoice with me in the reconciled relationship that I offered you. And let's pray that it would be thus so for us as well.